Muslims, Christians, and, and the, the zombie. zombie apocalypse. Muslims, Christians, and the zombie apocalypse. And they have zombie apocalypse. <laughs> Okay, so those of you that have listened for a while, you know that our house was flooded out back in October, mm. and we recently moved into a new home. We are settled. Hallelujah. Uh, everybody is excited. The kids are excited, but uh, we now have our old home that was flooded that we're trying to figure out what to do with, and so I'm trying to just do like a for sale as is by owner type thing, right? Mm-hmm. So it's on Craigslist and Zillow and <laughs> Craigslist, whatever, you know, just yeah. trying to get this thing off my hands. And so one of the guys that calls, he says, uh, I'd like to come by and see your house. And I noticed that he has what sounds to me like a Middle Eastern accent. And so I said, uh, um, so what's your name? And he said, uh, my name is Hamid. And I said, Hamid, it's very nice to, to talk with you. Would you like to see the house? He said, sure. Can we meet today? I said, absolutely. Drive over to meet him for the house. He gets out of his car. I said, Hamid, great to meet you. Uh, where are you from? And he says, oh, I'm uh, you know, not from here. And I was like, well, whereabouts are you from? And he said, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm actually from the Middle East. And I said, Hamid, like, where in the Middle East are you from? <laughs> You know, I had to ask him like three times to get it out of him, and he says, "Ah, well, actually, I'm from I'm 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 from Iraq, but you know, you you have nothing to fear." And I was like, "I, I wouldn't fear you just because you're from Iraq." He said, "No, you don't understand." And so he started to explain how he's afraid to tell people where he's from because they might think immediately he's associated with ISIS because he's coming from Iraq. So, you know, I told him what we do with the podcast, and he was very thankful, and he said, thank you so much for dispelling myths, and it it got me thinking about how stereotypes, man, they are powerful, Mm. and they can really affect people's daily lives. And so, we have an interview today, a story that comes from somebody that's uh, an Iranian-American, or an American-Iranian. Which, whatever you prefer. Whichever one. You know, I guess it depends probably on the context, on how she would identify herself, right? (laughs) Yeah. So sometimes, Howard, you probably identify yourself as a Korean-American. But, you know, American-Korean really doesn't flow as much. American-Korean? American-Korean? Korean-American. Yeah. African-American, Korean-American, Indian-American, Mexican-American, American. American. Right. Anyway, so thinking about that, uh, we wanted to do a show specifically on uh, an Iranian-American because there's a lot of stereotypes, and Iran is consistently in the news, and it has been for the last couple years, and... Quite frankly, this person encountered something that a lot of Muslims are encountering today back in 1979. And so her story will really fit with a lot of Muslims and what they're experiencing today. My name is Shireen Tabor, and I come from an Iranian-American background. My dad is Muslim and from Iran, and my mother is Christian, and she was born and raised in Southern California. And so my story began when my dad came to the U.S. as an international student. He was studying uh, aeronautical engineering, and it was in the 1960s, and he wanted what a lot of perhaps young men of his age wanted uh, was a California blonde. And so he would go to the L.A. uh, nightclubs, and and, uh, eventually he met my mother, who was a California blonde. She was Irish Catholic, and... Somehow they merged their lives together to cultures, to religions, to languages. Okay, so one of the ways in which uh, her father is described is back when he was living in Iran and serving in the Iranian military. Apparently his English was good enough that they wanted him to be a translator for an American officer that was going to address an entire room of Iranian soldiers. So the American officer, to lighten the mood, starts with a joke. 
which her father doesn't understand why it's funny. You know, jokes rarely translate. And so rather than try to translate the joke that he doesn't understand, he tells the crowd, this American officer just started with a joke of which I don't understand why it's funny. So rather than try and translate the joke on the count of three, I just want you all to erupt in laughter so that he can kind of think that we understand the joke. And so it's a, you know, in Farsi, he says all this and the room just busts out in laughter and the American officer feeling pretty good about his joke. But it just gives you a little <laughs> bit of insight as to what this guy's like, right? Yeah, this guy's gutsy, right? And, you know, being an immigrant, too, I mean, he's got to take some risks. And so coming to the States, uh, it makes sense. The the. California girl image. I, I get that. I can. I can. I'm just imagining like my uncles or my dad or pe- you know people coming over from uh, Korea or wherever, just thinking about what America is. You know, the California blonde. I think that's pretty typical, right? Right. So he comes to the United States. He's got very little, practically nothing, and he starts out by washing dishes. And I like how she describes that they're going to kind of blend these two sort of exotic worlds: California blonde world, Irish Catholic with Persian-Iranian Muslim world, I mean, you can't get more polar opposite. I think those just are like the polar opposites when I think about them. Yeah. And when you bring polar opposites together, sometimes it's not an easy process. And although it sounds glamorous, it was a, a very rocky marriage, and it was um, it was really tough, uh, frankly, a lot of the time. Um, there's things I love about my, my upbringing, the fact that I was exposed to travel. We lived in Iran part of the time, in the U.S. part of the time. And um, my dad worked for the airlines, and so were there a lot of privileges that came from that. But there was a lot of pain at home, too, uh, because ultimately my dad really longed to, um, to be in Iran and to even uh, go back to his heritage and even perhaps marry an Iranian woman. So there was a lot of uh, struggles. What's interesting about Shireen is that she actually does grow up in Iran and the U.S., Right. She spends like uh, one year in Iran and then one year in the U.S. or six months in Iran, six months in the U.S. So it's kind of cool that she's like exotic and she gets to go to the Middle East for a year and then back to the United States for a year. But at the same time, that's got to be a little bit difficult. Yeah, it's tough for a kid to keep switching schools. But we did ask her what it was like when she did get to go to school in Iran and how they treated her as an American. Yeah, I think as a child, I, I always kind of wanted to be more American. And maybe that's because my mother was American and that was my first language. Um, but yeah, there was a cool factor also of being American. In Iran, people thought oh, it was cool. hugely so. And it still is today. Hugely so. So like when I was in Iran, it was like, oh, there's the American kids. You know, well, we were, we were Iranian American. And, you know, we would talk about the Jackson 5 and McDonald's and... You know, uh, we would wear our American clothes and our tennis shoes, and yeah, we were like really uber cool. I'm just thinking like uber cool. Okay, Jackson Five. I know the music's oh, playing yeah. in my head too. No. <laughs> I just picture Jackson Five, and like that's what's uber cool. But at the same time, time frame, right? Context. This is uh, early '70s. Uh, it's really cool to be an American in Iran, and I don't think that's a world that we understand today. Yeah, it's so polar opposite of what we see in the media about Iran. Yeah, so she describes a little bit about how that was because I know that's not an Iran that most Americans are familiar with. Before the revolution, Iran and America were really tight. They were the, like, Iran and America were the closest Middle East and U.S., you know, relationship. 
and we were brokering all kind of kinds of deals with Iran, like militarily um, for the oil industry, helping them to build their infrastructure, bridges, hospitals, universities. So we were kind of riding that wave. We went to a private British school. We lived in an American like compound, and there was a lot of affluence and a lot of good good times. My dad would say, like, we went to the American movie theater. We went to the American you know, swim club and all these things that were there back in the late 70s. But all of that ended in 1979 when the hostage crisis happened and they kicked out the Shah and then it became an Islamic uh, regime and that's when women started veiling and, you know, the American military was kicked out. <laughs> Everything changed. But prior to that, it was like a honeymoon. It was, you know, my dad would had an American car. He'd ship that to Iran and we're driving in our Monte Carlo car and it's a little bit like the movie Argo. I don't know if you've seen that. Yeah. But it was it was definitely an asset to be an American back then. Yeah, it's so different. I was just thinking, um, they must have been pretty affluent. I mean <laughs> they No, I'm the, thinking rags to riches. Car, right? right. They shipped a car, uh the American swim club and I don't know what that would have looked like. This is in the seventies. Howard, but... neither one of us know what an American <laughs> swim club looks like. Yeah, we've, we've never, never been. been invited. We've never been invited. <laughs> yeah. But it is neat to think about. Like there's yeah. an American swim club, there's right. American movie theaters. Yeah. I imagine her with sunglasses on, even though she was like what, nine or something like that at the time. She Jackson five and the earphones. <laughs> That's right. You know, you got the big <laughs> headphones on, maybe a big boom box, so Yeah late 70s it's weird to think of someone describing the iranian american relationship as a honeymoon right because we don't get that at all we all we hear is nuclear war nuclear crisis nuclear um, facilities where they're building bombs and yeah it's it's totally different and of course when obama uh struck that deal recently with iran i mean that again brought them back into the forefront of the news right so every everything changes in 1979 but even before that um, Shireen recalls kind of her first encounter with terrorism. She was only nine years old. And one of the military officers that was living about three floors above them uh, was brutally murdered on his way to work. And her mom kind of got an idea about how things were quickly turning. And so she got her family out of there. And fortunately, she did in the time that she did because the Iranian Revolution was going to change everything. Um. In 1979, the hostage crisis happened, and I know a lot of our young millennial uh, audiences may not remember that, but that was a historic shift in America's relationship with the Middle East. And in uh, that time, America and Iran were on very good terms, but things changed overnight when Khomeini flew into Tehran Some from 60 Americans, Paris, including our fellow citizen whom you just saw bound and blindfolded, are now beginning their sixth day of captivity inside the U.S. Embassy in Tehran. It's Friday morning there now, but throughout this night in Washington, officials will continue their search for some way to negotiate the hostages' freedom. That search was not successful today. In this broadcast, we'll have reports on the diplomatic... And that radically changed my life because people no longer looked at me as someone who was exotic from the Middle East, but they looked at me as if I was a terrorist, and I was only 12 at the time, and um, that was really uh, a tough situation in junior high. I, I would say that was the first time that shame and guilt uh, entered my life. Okay, Howard, I have an 11-year-old. You've got a 13-year-old. Right. Um, it's already a difficult time of life. Yeah, I mean, talk about middle school by itself. I mean, without shame from where you're from. <clears throat> I remember when I was a kid, kids used to ask me, are you from North Korea or South Korea? 
And, you know, I would get so frustrated because I didn't want to have anything to do with North Korea because even when I was a kid, it was crazy. Um, but I would laugh it off and I would say, if I was from North Korea, I'd still be there right now. You know, I wouldn't be here talking to you. And they would laugh and then it would just quickly change the subject. But it, that was just a little bit of a feeling. And I wasn't even really from North Korea. So <laughs> I, all I you're trying to do is fit in at that yeah, age. Yeah, man. You just want to be normal. You don't want to be stand out, you know? Yeah. That's right. Don't stand out for anything, no matter what. Just kind of blend in. That's all you can think about when you're 12 years old. Just, I'm a wallflower. And here, all of a sudden, she's now a target. watching TV and watching the news and, um, you know, seeing these Iranian university students attacking the American embassy and, you know, cars burning and people chanting death to America. And, you know, I'm sitting there going, what is going on? And then seeing that played out at school when people would stop me and they knew I was, uh, you know, foreign, so to speak, because they knew I had been living in that part of the world. But when I had teachers that would stop me in the hallway and say, Shireen, is it true? You're Iranian? And I, I was like, yes, I'm Iranian. And so that was really, that was really tough. Yeah, and then seeing the yellow ribbons that were tied everywhere to help America remember and pray for the hostages in Iran. And it wasn't just for a few weeks. It was like a year or something that they were taken hostage. So, yeah, that was really Okay, so one way of coping with this uh, sort of uh, stereotyping and overgeneralizing, like, is it true? Are you from Iran? Is some Iranians just started changing their name. Yeah. There's one comedian that says, like, when you're Iranian, you just kind of go out and you no longer are known as, you know, Ahmed, you just change your name to Tony. Hey, (laughs) you know, I'm Tony. You talk with an Italian accent. So (laughs) we actually asked Shireen, did you just want to change your name? And so she didn't, but she said that she remembers her brothers wanting to do that, that that was a common thing. Yeah, I mean, anything to cope. And, you know, like, we can judge here from this seat, but the idea is, man, when you're in middle school and these kids are like, you know, your friends are trying to you know, treat you differently because you're, you're from a different place, man. I, you know, I don't, I don't blame kids, especially me knowing my own children, man. It's, it's, it's so hard. And if, uh, dealing with not fitting in in middle school isn't difficult enough, what Shireen is about to experience is just heartbreaking. So when I was 14, my mom started to show strange symptoms and she wasn't able to get out of bed and she wasn't able to make dinner and she wasn't able to pick me up from basketball practice and I didn't know what was going on and uh, eventually we found out that she had full-blown cancer and we didn't know that her our local doctor was misdiagnosing her she was only 39 and we took her to the ER and three months later she was dead I still have a hard time processing that. All I can tell you is that, um, yeah, it was it was really tough to already be struggling with cultural identity issues and these issues of shame in junior high, and then um, to have your mom gone because she was what helped me to feel connected to American culture. cried once and it was right the day that we found out she had passed because we didn't she was in a coma and you know as a child you're always thinking your mom's going to wake up your mom there's just death is not even 
you don't have categories for that, right? When you're 14, my brothers were 11 and 12. And so when it finally happened, I was at school. I didn't even know she had passed away. I'd seen her at the hospital the night before. And um, I heard about it through the junior high office. You know, like somebody called me in and gave me a note and said, your mom passed away. And, and, um, and I remember just kind of blindly going through class. And then I felt really guilty again. You know, shame was such a big part of my life. And I remember going to my track coach and saying, I'm really sorry. I can't go to the meet this afternoon. I can't run. And he's like, oh, really? Why is that? And I, I just said, my mom died. And I went home and I just remember being there and then my dad came into my room and I started to cry and then he said, why are you crying? We knew she was going to die. You know, we knew. And that was the best way he could probably process that. But I'm like, did we? Did we really know she was going to die? I mean, how can you know that? That's like so final. So I think at this point in the story, Howard and I are just kind of looking back at one another, just feeling like, oh my goodness. Yeah, like when I was listening to it, I was like super depressed. And like now listening to it now, it's it's still like, it's heartbreaking. No, it is. I don't, I don't know of a lot of people that have encountered, you know, sort of tragedy upon tragedy upon tragedy. You know, first the Iranian revolution, feeling totally isolated, you mm-hmm. know, losing your mother, your one connection back with the United States. Your father uh, has lost everything because of the revolution. I mean, this is a total crisis. And I wonder how many immigrants that we have in the United States coming from similar backgrounds that might have experienced the exact same thing. Right. We have immigrants coming from war-torn areas like Syria, like Iraq. I mean, I think about Hamid, like what kind of things has he been experiencing? And when I hear Shireen's story, I think there's probably a lot of Shireen's out there and when we see her at her worst sort of hopeless moment, that's when a neighbor comes to the rescue. My neighbor, Pam, uh, was the first person that really took some time to look me in the eye and just say, you can't do this alone, Shereen. And she would rub my back and pray for us and feed us. And, you know, we didn't have deep talks, but she's the one that consistently pointed me to Christ and said, you really, you need to think about allowing Christ to enter into this with you. And, you know, when you're 14 or 15, it's so abstract. But, you know, just took little steps to move in the right direction. So. All right, so this show wouldn't be possible without sponsors. And at this point in the show is where if you want to partner with us, we would put your ad. So if you want to be a part of the show, you You want to partner with us. You like what we're doing. You want to be on our team, what have you, bringing this show to the world, then email us and let us know. So the way that Shireen describes Pam, the neighbor, is... It's almost like her mom and Pam were really good friends. You know, they're both trying to raise young children. Uh, Shireen's mother is Irish Catholic. Pam is clearly uh, Protestant. And Pam kind of steps in in a very motherly role and begins to tell her about how she needs Jesus in order to do this. And 
as Shireen described it, is rather abstract. Like, what does that even mean? And so (laughs) one night she's just laying there and she thinks, okay, Pam is telling her she needs to invite Jesus into her heart and in some kind of like strange way. She doesn't know what that means, but she thinks, all right, if this is what it's going to take, then Jesus, I invite you into my heart. Because at this point she is just desperate. You know, she needs something. And Pam has just provided such love and care for her that in some ways she just trusts that what Pam is saying is what she needs. And so she kind of just cries out for God and God meets her in a pretty incredible way. And Pam is not just a neighbor that just comes by and says, hi, Pam becomes pretty instrumental in Shireen's survival. My dad would be gone uh, for months at a time. He would leave, leave us with a checkbook. And a, when I was 16, I got, the li- I got a license. And literally, I couldn't even drive the car. It was a stick shift, and I couldn't even drive it. So a friend came over and showed me how to drive it. Um, today, they, our neighbors would have called social services. We would have been the foster care system. But my neighbor... Again, Pam, she would set up like temporary babysitting situations. Like we had a, a fireman and a nurse that stayed with us once for three months. They were so cool. He had like the killer, you know, mustache, the 70s mustache. And the, his wife was a nurse and she was just adorable. She looked like a little cheerleader. And uh, they took care of us. But we were a rascally bunch, my brothers and I. We were, you know, we were tough. We were, um, you know a little jaded and uh, still trying to fit into American society. And we listened to rock music. We would like, no one was home. So we would have these huge, huge stereo and we would like have ACDC and we'd turn the stereo toward the speakers towards the window and just like, <laughs> we were running around. I think there was a fire in the house once. I mean, it was bad. But um, I did my best to be mom, you know, I was cooking and cleaning and vacuuming and washing out the shower and, you know, going grocery shopping. And I remember one time I was at the bank and I think I pulled out like $500 and I was 16 years old. And finally the bank lady, after I'd done that for, you know, five or six weeks in a row, going back and forth to the bank, pulling cash out, she's like, do your parents know what you're doing? I'm like, there are no parents. I'm in charge. I'm 16. I'm in charge. So, um, but again, you know, God provided these neighbors that were looking out for us. And at times we would go and stay with them for weeks and months at a time when there was nobody available to come to our home. So yeah, I became independent very early by 14. I was, yeah, like I did not see anyone as a parent. I just saw them as role models and, you know, mentors, but no, even my dad to this day, he's more of a friend than truly a dad. I would never ask him for anything or because he was trying to survive after the, the revolution and just trying to earn a living. The thing that strikes me about that part of the story is um, how sad it is that she isn't even, even able to spend the time to process kind of the loss of her mother, um, the father's loss of everything, um, her, even her father's absence. I have a 13-year-old daughter and I cannot even imagine her having to take over. Um, our whole family and and provide for them and go shopping for them, Um, even going to the bank or or figuring out how to drive. You just see this incredible level of independence that she has, but it's forced upon her. Yeah, you're kind of forced to uh, grow up. And and grow up with responsibility of others, right? Some kind, you know, like some of us, we, we grow up eventually, but you know, we don't have people weighing on us, um, at that young of an age, 14 years old and having to take care of her brothers. 
I think if anything, I would describe myself as a survivor, like a lot of immigrant children and, and children of the revolution, that we don't take time to really process too much. We just keep moving. And, um, but somehow God has redeemed that. And I have an amazing marriage and three kids that are really healthy and successful. And, um, you know, I just keep move, moving forward with them. And I, I feel like God has brought a lot of healing even just by living out the family now that I have, seeing what it means to be a mother and seeing my children and I interact. It brings a lot of healing in the next generation. You know, it's interesting that she describes both her father and herself as survivors. You know, you're just doing what you have to do to survive. Like, you do what you got to do. Right. There's no luxury of just being able to sit and mope and, you know, have a pity party. Um, they got to buy groceries. They got to, you know, put food on the table. Yeah, they gotta, laundry's got to be done. Yeah. Um, the, the brothers, you know, you have to break them up from fighting or whatever, you know, clean the house. Uh, it's Yeah, which is not that luxury just to be able to sit and... Not, mope, mope. not not do what most 14-year-olds are able to do. Right. So Vent on Facebook. So actually, we started kind of joking with Shereen. So when you're talking to your kids, do you like take it a whole step further than just, when I was a kid, I walked uphill both ways to school? <laughs> do you take it to a whole new level? I'm, I'm very much of the person like, just make it happen. Don't complain. Like, you know, and I tend to be a little tough on my kids. Like, well, I didn't have a mom to raise me, and we lived in Iran, and we were refugee, or we were immigrants, and like, just deal with it. And so my husband, who's more sensitive than I am, uh, usually has to intervene, and I've learned over time to bite my lip and, you know, allow them to be kids, allow them to cry, allow them to have feelings, and but I've had to learn that. I have, fake it till you make it. Uh, you know, there's something to say about uh, the process that parents go through because we all have baggage, right? We grew up with dysfunctional family systems and we have to be able to deal with it. And I love how she's like, you know, having a family has really helped heal that. I had to learn how to let my my kids have feelings. <laughs> fake it till you make it. Yeah, I appreciate right, that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's honest and it's open. And, you know, I think your kids are probably really healthy for, for it. You know, she's being able to say, okay, yeah, you can cry. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think in some ways when you meet Shireen, she's a very warm and inviting person, but at the same time she describes herself as a thinker and not so much as a feeler. Mm. And so what I really appreciate is that when we would even ask her tough questions and she would say, boy, you were asking some tough questions yeah. there, you know, trying oh, to Trevor had her cry at the feelings, times. you know, but, but what I really appreciate about her is that she's willing to go to those places because she does feel like that God has started the healing process and continues to do healing and it's not to say that everything just kind of gets fixed at once but she's on that journey and she's seeing it played out in the next generation that's pretty amazing yeah and i think that journey is really important for her because she sees it as her role um, to help break down stereotypes between muslims and, and everybody else yeah i think she can actually connect with Muslim immigrants living in the United States today, post 9-11, right. who are dealing with a lot of the same things that she was dealing with when she was 14. You know, she went through that identity crisis. Like, am I American? Am I Iranian? Am I Muslim? Am I Christian? And so she kind of had this, you know, whole identity crisis going. And so she has this incredible story where she's able to connect with Muslim immigrants in ways that you and I just can't. There are millions of Muslims today that really also struggle with an identity crisis. Um, they're asking themselves, who are they? How do they fit into society? What is their future? I know a lot of uh, Muslim parents are asking themselves, 
what kind of a faith or future can they offer their children. Um, there are scholars who are asking themselves, where is the arc of Islam going? Is it going to become increasingly violent or will it be reformed? Um, I know a mother who has a 13-year-old son and she is really terrified that he may become radicalized. Um, but at the same time, I can tell you from personal experience that um, the Muslim next door, my relatives are just everyday people. They're going to work, they're raising their kids, they're soccer moms, they're volunteering. Um, they're delighted if you invite them to church for a special event, a Christmas event. Um, they're real people too, and so we need to remember that and to not demonize Muslims. I really identify with um, Muslims right now. I don't know how they can watch the evening news because every night, Fox or whatever, CNN, they're constantly talking about you know the issues of radicalization and you know where's Islam going and everyone's blaming each other and no one's really taking responsibility and I just wish we could have an honest conversation that we are all hurting. It's pretty amazing when you think about Shireen's story and how she has had some unique experiences that allow her to speak to this particular issue of dealing with the media, post 9-11 media, which is pretty incredibly negative towards Muslims and very oversimplistic and overgeneralizing and demonizing. Demonizing. So it's pretty unique that she's had these experiences and she's able to speak specifically to these issues. Right. That this is, you know, all happening or has happened to her before 9-11. And then now after 9-11, she has this incredible voice, uh, this actually need um, to be able to uh, help us think differently. Uh, the identity crisis thing, we, we, we kind of come back to it a lot in this show, but it blows me away. And when she kind of presented the idea that, you know, these, these Muslim women don't know, you know, like what they're supposed to do with their faith and how they're going to raise their kids, uh, just trying to figure out what it means for them as Muslims is where's Islam going? Um, these are some incredible questions that I don't know if Christians have ever thought of. Um, even in any you know recent crisis that we've had um, in, in in Christian circles, we don't think about is is Christianity being hijacked, right? We just think, oh, those guys are the crazies. But with with Muslims, I can't imagine what a Muslim family, a moderate family, sitting at home. You know, as Ben Affleck says, just wanting to eat sandwiches, go to school, right? Having to realize or have to, having to contemplate what, where their faith is going as a whole, as a group. I think it's incredibly discouraging for your average Muslim when they have to have a counter-narrative, right? Because public narratives are powerful. Yeah. And when there's a public narrative that the true Islam is violent, as the media is often portraying, and then when you're at home with your kids... It's probably incredibly difficult to want to have any faith narrative. It's almost like I can understand why the comedian says, you know, sometimes you just want to say, no, my name is Tony and talk with an Italian accent. Yeah. And I guess the thing that I would be thinking of is um, how do you come back? I mean, even with the counter narrative, what we've kind of noticed as far as um, breaking down walls, stereotypes with with Muslims, if you're a Christian or a non-Muslim, um, it's really you getting to know Muslims, but it's kind of a catch-22, right? You don't know um, a Muslim probably because it seems so foreign, and then there's in the back of your head maybe that's there's there's a fear, you know, it's it's uh, they're not safe, uh, and so you don't talk to a Muslim, and your stereotypes stereotypes don't break down, right? You're not going to listen to this podcast, you know that 
most of the, the people that are on this uh, listen to this podcast are the ones that are that already have a heart for Muslims, right? Am I right? You're right. Let, let me give you. A, let me let me close with a story, Aaron. Uh, like I mentioned earlier in the show, that we recently purchased a home. So as I went to the bank to transfer money for the closing, uh, I was sitting down with a personal banker. And uh, she may be listening to the show. I won't mention her name. When I saw her name, I couldn't place it, but I knew it was a Muslim name. But I wasn't sure where exactly she was from, and I was having a hard time. So I just said to her, um, so where are you from? I'm having a hard time placing your name. And she said, oh, I'm from the Middle East. And I thought, wow, twice in one week I have Muslims that are unwilling to say where they're from. Just they want to generalize and say they're from the Middle East because they don't want to be stereotyped. They don't want to be generalized. And so I said, I kind of figured it was the Middle East. Which part? Which country? And she goes... You're so direct, Trevor. (laughs) She goes, I'm from Syria. Now, you need to understand the context here. South Carolina has a bill at the State House right now trying to eliminate any people, immigrants coming from Syria or Iraq. So I've encountered a Syrian and an Iraqi in Columbia, South Carolina in a period of one week who were both unwilling to tell me where they were from. And so when I asked her, I said, so you're from Syria? And I just started asking questions about Syria. She immediately noticed there was something different, right? And so she said, what do you do? And I said, well, actually, I'm a professor at a university. I teach on, you know, Muslim and Christian relations, and I teach... Um, I do a podcast. I told her about the podcast, and she was so thankful. And I said, you know, part of changing the narrative is you got to keep telling people you're from Syria. And she looked at me, and she said, honestly, I've kind of given up. Because every time she says she's from Syria, she said she gets some of the most ignorant questions you could ever imagine. They ask things like, so were you allowed to drive a car? So were you allowed to go outside? And she's thinking... I'm a financial advisor. You know, my husband is a financial advisor. Um, She's thinking, why just because I'm from Syria and I'm Muslim, do you think some reason, you know, like I ride a camel and can never leave and go outside? She was so frustrated, but I told her, I said, you have to maintain a counter narrative. You have to tell people, listen, I'm from Syria and I've got a good education, and I had a father that loved me, and my husband is very caring, and I said, change the narrative. And so she was really encouraged by the end. Well, at least, you know, she was my personal banker, so maybe she was just being really nice to me. But I think, I think by the end of the conversation, she was really encouraged just to see that not every person living in South Carolina is against her, because right. that's also not true, right? No matter what you think. Not everybody living in South Carolina is anti-Muslim and trying to keep Muslims out of this country. And so we have to change that narrative as well. Right. So tell us a little bit about Shireen and what she's doing now. Okay, so, you know, like I was saying, that's what gives Shireen an incredible influence and an incredible platform is because she has lived this experience of being both a Middle Eastern woman, uh, living and growing up in a Muslim home and a Christian home. And so, my goodness, she has this incredible platform, and she's working now through the Middle East Women's Leadership Network, which uh, is MideastWomen.org. Uh, They're passionate about helping women become world-class leaders by using media for their mission. 
And so some of the things that they're, they're doing uh, in, include media engagement, uh, gender equality, religious freedom, trauma counseling, uh, working for peace and security in the Middle East. And so she's got this incredible platform. She's developing this network of, of women, both Christians and Muslims, to work together uh, to empower women in the Middle East. So and if you cool. And if you want to know more about her story, she also wrote a book um, called Muslims Next Door. Yeah, could we put that in the show notes? Huh? Yeah, we're going to put a link to it so you can buy it on Amazon. Uh, great book. And we'll also put uh, information on how to uh, contact uh, Shireen. Maybe you would like her to be a speaker. Uh, she speaks at churches and things like that. So anyway, Howard, I was just really encouraged by how God has redeemed her story. You know, a very difficult story. Right, because her trajectory for her life was not probably going to be going that way. Um, now she's an encouragement to women all across the world, right? Um, she's healing, right, with uh, her relationships through her family, her, her husband and, and children. Uh, it's just remarkable what God has done. Yeah, and it starts with a neighbor. You know what I mean? Just a regular neighbor named Pam. And so I know there are a lot of Pams out there that you're just you're living next door to a Muslim and you got to break the stereotypes. So we are one review away from hitting number 50. As last time we checked, 49 reviews. Yeah, I kind of feel like you just went into the grocery store and it's like, we have 49 customers. We're waiting for our 50th. (laughs) And uh, the 50th is going to win something special that we're really excited about. Yeah. Should we tell them what it is? Yeah, go ahead. It is a Muslims, Christians, and the zombie apocalypse coffee mug. Yep, and you can show it off to all your friends. Like, what is that? Let me tell you about this podcast I'm listening to. Yeah, they're, they're really sweet. Howard's uh, ordered them, and we'll be getting those in. And so whoever number 50 is, we want you to write your review and then send us a note on Facebook saying, hey, number 50, that was me. And then we'll get together. We'll send you a coffee mug. And uh, yeah, so leave We're those excited. reviews. Yeah, and after 50, keep writing because we still, our goal is 100 reviews. Uh, what? By the end of this year? Oh, that was end of the summer. End of the summer. By the end of the summer. You heard it here. By the end of the summer. So uh, keep writing those reviews, and we're going to keep still giving away stuff. Uh, and if you ever want any kind of merchandise, too, you know, like you're interested, you know, maybe we'll we'll be able to get that into your hands, too. Cool swag. If you didn't, if you didn't win something, stickers. you know, you, you could just buy it and support us if you want. <laughs> well, then the number 50 guy's like, so I need an exclusive mug. We'll have a, should we, should we'll we sign, sign it? We'll sign, we'll sign the sign mug. <laughs> We're not that cool. We're not that famous. <laughs> But we appreciate you guys. Keep leaving reviews on iTunes and share on social media. Please get people to listen. This is one way that we can change uh, the narrative. See you next week.